Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, host of Over the Edge, the only podcast focused on teaching you about edge computing, the grid, and the future of the internet. On this show, I interview experts and practitioners with deep knowledge and expertise in digital infrastructure and the software and technologies that support it. We'll even throw in a little metaverse, Web3, and cryptocurrency to keep it on trend. Join us each episode for a mind-expanding romp through the vast technological and business landscape that is quickly defining our new digital world. Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Rob Tiffany, Executive Director at the Moab Foundation. In this episode, we delve deep into how Rob went from a life of driving submarines to being self-taught in technology, and eventually becoming a leader in the world of IoT. Rob explains the value of IoT and the best ways to sell and explain it to the average person in real-world terms so they understand how embracing technology can save them time and money. Finally, Rob talks about how edge computing, IoT, and automation can be used to help with sustainability around the globe. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now please enjoy this interview between Rob Tiffany, Executive Director of the Moab Foundation and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hey Rob, how are you doing today? I'm good, Matt. It's good to be here. Super. Where, where are you calling in from? I'm in the Seattle, Washington area in the Pacific Northwest. I'm actually close to Redmond, Washington. I used to live there. I lived on Orcas Island for five years. So, oh, dude. Yeah. Such a, well, such a well, neat, neat place, place in the a, world. That is a neat place. Absolutely. Neat place. Yeah. Absolutely. That's cool. So, Rob, thank you for, for joining us on Over the Edge. I'm super interested in, in knowing how you even got started in technology. Yeah. Well, I probably did some stuff in high school. I think I had one of those little Sinclair computers. That of course in the U.S. it was called a Timex Sinclair, right? And you can hook it up to a TV set or whatever and do basic programming. But I think it really happened for me is when I used to be in the Navy, which is another Pacific Northwest thing, not far from Orcas Island on the Olympic Peninsula. I, I understand that you spent some time in submarines. Yeah, I did. I did. I was on a SEAL Team delivery vehicle submarine, which is like an old ballistic missile sub where they took out the ICBMs put little mini subs on the back, like total James Bond stuff. Total James Bond, yeah. It was. And then more boring after that, I was on a Trident submarine up here in the Pacific Northwest near Silverdale, Palsbo, that area on Hood Canal. And that's a much more boring thing. You've got your 24 ICBMs and you're just cruising around slowly waiting for the message from the president to blow up the planet. So it's kind of chill. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah. Super like a vacation. It's like a vacation, absolutely, that you can't leave. You spent some of that time learning about and getting into technology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in my off time, when I wasn't driving the sub or whatever, yeah, I was buying tons of computer books. So teaching myself programming, databases, networking, all that kind of stuff. And just went all in with that stuff, which was great because then it meant I could actually get a job when I got out of the military instead of watching videos or all day and not being prepared. It's like, I, I couldn't tell you, there's lots of people, you know, it's like, well, I'm really good at sonar and torpedoes and missiles, but, and I can't find my job match. So yeah, I dove into visual basic back then. I was going to ask you, like, what was the, what was the, the, the your, your toe yeah. in, the, in the water? Yeah, exactly. So visual basic. So I got lots of sand kicked in my face for not being a real programmer back then. Oh, access databases and VB back in the nineties. Right. But you know what? It actually worked out. It turns out there was lots of jobs to be had doing that for windows and everything. And so, well, yeah. And you ended up at Microsoft where it, yeah. it seems like that's where you really started your IOT career. Is that correct? Actually, I started it much sooner than that. I've been really? at IOT okay. way too long. You know, it's like your grandpa here of IOT. Literally, when I got out of the military in the mid 90s, I joined a startup. I probably should have joined Microsoft then because I would have had a lot more stock, but I joined a startup instead. Literally, it was called Real Time Data, and it was doing vending machines and bringing old vending machines to life. We didn't have smart anything. This is the Internet of Things before the Internet. Yes, it was. It was. Absolutely. You know, was it like uh, dial up modems? 
it was it was a little better that we did some dial up for a few things, but you know the the guy who started it was like a Motorola guy and like Motorola mm, right first responder radio Motorola that one, and so it was interesting. We had I'd say we have three different teams. We had the embedded team that was the embedded C code and a black box inside a vending machine. There's we had cabling and stuff because a vending machine uses spirals to turn to move like your chips and candy bars out. And then Coke, can Coke machines, Pepsi, whatever. So we had people who were figuring out how the mechanical stuff inside those machines worked and translated that to digital and captured. We knew, okay, white donuts were just dispensed. Someone just bought them. We can see this many quarters are in the quarter change, you know, or if the exact change light is on. And so they built that. We had RF engineers, radio frequency engineers, actually guys from Allied Signal, like the same guys who built the black box for aircraft, because you had to invent everything back then. IoT is so easy today, but back then you had to invent every aspect of it from scratch. And so we were literally building our own wireless modems and we were bouncing packets off of these. They're like these community business 450 radio towers. We'd bounce packets off of that. We used Mobidens. We There was a lot of, you know how there's early days of any technology, there's tons of players and then it shakes out after a yeah. while. So if you can remember the early days of wireless data, there were all kinds of players trying to make a go of it before cellular kind of took hold, right? And so we used a lot of the same technology stuff as like the BlackBerry folks were using and some other things to create coverage. And so we'd put antennas on the vending machine and then there's the the kind of the PC that you'd give to the customer who owns all the vending machines. And they had a visual basic running on Windows graphical interface that looked like they're looking at a vending machine. And they could see all the candies and drinks and everything and numbers, how many have been dispensed. And little simple KPIs, green, yellow, red, and time to restock, things like that. And yeah, it was just an early kind of typical IoT use case. It was really around, I'd say, inventory management and optimizing like a route driver gets up. Yeah, every and it probably pushes all the way back into supply chain. And it uh, does. Yeah, that's it that's does. really that's really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, did vending machines have like onboard analytics back then, or just doing analytics on like? So this is all like fresh. That's really. They were all dumb, fully mechanical vending machines. No tech that came years later. And so you're out. We had to invent everything. And so we, and also you know how people think somehow think of inadvertently the cloud with IoT which I think is a misnomer. Well, we didn't have a cloud or any stuff. We actually, from our PC running Windows 3.1 with our DigiBoard to give us more COM ports to have more modems hanging off, we would pull the vending machine directly across a city wirelessly, and the black box had logged and stored the information there, and we'd grab it and pull it back into our database literally on the PC so that you could see the current state of each machine. and But this ultimately, yeah, it was to optimize a route driver instead of them having to mindlessly fill their pickup truck with everything and visit all the machines. Now we're saying you only need to go here, here, and here, and this is exactly what you need to bring to optimize that. And so that worked out really well. That was a, a fun experience. And then you know how sometimes you stumble upon things that you didn't plan? Most of my life, but yes. Yeah, yeah. So we thought we were about route optimization and making things more efficient and saving money for the people who own the vending machines. But all of a sudden we realized that we were doing merchandising because we had real-time information on the preferences of the people's buying habits. That's that where I was it, going with my question. We just, yeah. We're just like, oh, look at that. And you know how a lot of times vending machines are like a, a bank of vending machines, like three or mm -hmm. four of them together. So imagine vending machines that were monitoring. split test. Yes, all over the city. I and so it. in this particular skyscraper at these offices that all these people work at, we found out in real time, boy, these people sure do love Snickers or white donuts or whatever it is. And we'd see them moving faster and then going empty faster. And so you're like, well, what if we doubled up the number of Snickers? And before you knew it, the vending machine was making more money than it was making before because we could identify the consumer preferences in real time. We're a bunch of idiot engineers we just stumbled upon that stuff. And then later on, the people who actually make those brands, they started to want our information 
that we oh, had. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, so, it happened in the grocery stores too. That's really neat. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was really cool. So yes, you know, you're right. You're bumbling, stumbling your way through life and going, oh, I guess this is important to somebody. So yeah, it was really cool. That's like the the proto internet of things, as we said before, the internet. So so how would you define the internet of things? Because when I think about it, like everything's a thing. My smartphone's yeah. a thing. My laptop's a thing. My desktop's a thing. My Alexa's a thing. How, how do you think of the internet of things and how you distinguish it from the internet of everything? Yeah. I tried to shut some of that stuff down. Everybody has their own opinion. Like, for instance, well, I want a, your lot opinion. Of, a lot of people say, oh, your smartphone is a part of IoT and all these other things. I and other analyst firms tried to go, well, you know what? This could get crazy and we could call everything a thing, which you could. And so it, I was kind of thinking of it as a headless device where there's no human interaction that can make it work like you can with your smartphone. Fair enough. Where this is, you have a device and associated sensors and there's no human to help you on the other side there, just autonomously sending its telemetry and receiving commands, right, to do stuff. And that's kind of like an 80-20 90 10 thing. Most of the time, you're just getting telemetry about health and state and what's going on with that thing, whatever it is. And then maybe 10 or 20% of the time, you might send a command to it for actuators. And it's it's interesting. And de depending on the space, you know, IoT is pretty broad. And then people have sliced that up with clever use of marketing to say that there's different areas of IoT. So when IoT got hot, obviously, we've been doing this stuff forever. But it probably got hot 2010, 2011, where, and I think it was a perfect storm that came together that made that possible. It's not like we didn't know how to get telemetry from machines. It was just really expensive and always proprietary, right? Obviously, we were getting telemetry from Apollo 11 and astronauts' health and their suits on the moon. So it's not like we didn't know how to do that. And we send commands to deep space probes. But doing it using IP networks, the internet, trying to standardize a lot of things, and then having cost of devices and sensors go down, more ubiquity of networks instead of having to roll your own all the time. And so you had, I don't want to say you have total ubiquitous wireless networks, but outside, it, at least in people populated areas. And then, of course, indoors, you've got Ethernet and Wi-Fi and lots of other things, Bluetooth, a million other ways to talk. And so when all that came together and the costs came down, and also, we can't forget analytics because you have to figure out the what, you know, the insight that you're deriving from all this. You know how early on you think all the stuff you're building is magical, and then after a while you get over it and you go, I just built a bunch of plumbing. The, the, the magical stuff is how you derive insights and take actions on those insights. And so that's really whatever the analytics are. And so something else came along, too. Anybody, after a while, could go to Apache.org and just download for free advanced analytics tooling, open source databases, message queues, machine learning tools, all kinds of things. Things that, like everything else in IoT, were previously the domain of wealthy companies, governments, stuff like that. Those technology existed, but they were proprietary. They were very expensive. So now all of a sudden, it's kind of like a leveled playing field we democratized the world there because now it was affordable. Everybody had the analytics and they could start deriving insights. You got Hadoop, you got all kinds of crazy stuff. And so people are like, wow, I can do stuff now. And so, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of magical. And so that's that, that perfect storm came together a little over 10 years ago. And then people started talking about it and it was hard to distinguish it because in the moment there was a much bigger megatrend happening back then, which still goes on today. And that's the smartphone revolution. A lot of folks have thought, well, IoT is the next big thing after the smartphone revolution, right? Just me being jaded here. Tech companies need something to sell. <laughs> and so they- well, I, I, my, my, my day job is marketing. I get that. Yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing before since the smartphone revolution even comes close, actually. And there's what no- you, What do you mean by that? The amount of money, the amount of excitement, the amount of instantaneous by a customer saying, I've got to have this thing. You know, in marketing, we try so hard yeah. to convince people they need to buy something oh, oh, that yeah. they don't want to buy. But because of this thing, which is the single most successful, biggest selling product in the world of all time, trillion dollar plus product, people's like, I got to have it. People are lined up outside. That's magic. We don't have that with anything else. No, we don't. Know? And that, that's absolutely true. In fact, I, I was a student of 
this the, a consumer adoption. And I remember that it took the, the banking industry over a decade to get half of us using ATMs. Yeah. Like, and that's like, like talk about the benefit. Like you go get cash anytime you want. You don't have to wait in line, talk to a teller. Yeah. But yeah. Seems and, so and obvious. It, yeah. And so, so the idea that, that something could go from zero to 80% penetration in right. just a short amount of time is, is incredible. And how, how do you relate that to IoT, though? What's the connection between the smartphone and, and the Internet of Things? Well, the smartphone, because of the smartphone and all the investment in R&D, not just obviously by Apple, but Samsung and all the other players. I used to be on the Windows Phone team. Windows Mobile at Microsoft. And so I had to get thick skin, as you can yeah. imagine. <laughs> but all that R&D, all the research and the, the rise of ARM-based processors, the making things smaller, we would not have ever built, never say never, obviously, the, the chips, the sensors, the technology at a low cost if it wasn't for this mega trend of smartphones forcing us down that path. And so a side effect of all this work, and you know how things, the, like the most expensive version of the thing you make is the first version, and then it gets cheaper and cheaper. Mm -hmm. Well, IoT, this, the thing part of it, the device side of it, benefited from the whole planet going all in on smartphones, right? Obviously, you had the wireless networks happening and everything else. And so it made the idea of having these low-cost microcontrollers and all kinds of sensors widely available from all kinds of manufacturers, because obviously we talk about data and insights, but you know, you got to start somewhere, right? You got to start with the thing. Some things have that innate capability baked into them. Old stuff doesn't, you have to retrofit. So it's interesting. So yeah, we, we really owe a lot to the smartphone revolution to make the thing thing. Yeah, I just said the thing thing happen. The thing thing, the thing <laughs> happen. Well, we're in, we're in this state now where, you know, as you say, the cost of a microprocessor, or even a system on chip has been driven down the cost curves at potentially pennies. You've got wireless modems that are relatively inexpensive, and you've got these sensors, whether it's motion sensors or gyroscopes or all these things that are, are relatively inexpensive and can be combined into a small device that can be connected. Yeah. And how do you see that changing the world? Well, it's certainly a facilitator, if nothing else, to, to make some of this happen. How it changes the world, a lot of times I feel like people overthink IoT or industrial IoT or the edge, no offense, or the cloud. It's IoT is just remotely knowing something. Normally in the past, a human yeah. being would have to walk somewhere, drive somewhere, fly on a plane somewhere to physically inspect something and see its current state and health. And that might mean walking around a chemical plant or an oil refinery and looking at gauges and writing down on a clipboard the current, what that value is. And then I go back in and I type it into some computer system. I always tell people, you're just competing against a guy with a clipboard. But people overthink it. They spend all their time talking about AI and stuff that people don't understand instead of realizing the tremendous value of because of the power of wireless and having instantaneous. Remember, we used to talk about real-time enterprises a long time ago. Yeah, they do. And the whole rise, the whole API economy. I know we've all said that before, but it, it's all—they're all kind of commingled uh, a right. bit. It's like now I know instantly the current state of all my stuff, and I can make decisions. Or better yet, real IoT is I'm going to automate the decisions, and magic's going to happen, right? And so starts with incremental improvements. It's like, what was the value of the vending machine thing? We saved them money, we made them more money, we made them save fuel from traveling places in trucks. When we started to build Azure IoT at Microsoft, and so I was on that team when we built it and incubated it, I got to be one of the co-authors of the reference architecture for that technology. And that was a lot of fun building a global cloud-based And it's very system. well respected, so good job. Yeah, yeah, it kind of worked out, so that's good. But it was, interesting stringing that together. And I would do the majority of the executive briefings also. So Microsoft's got that big executive briefing center on the campus. And every week, plane loads of CEOs from every company on the planet would come flying into Seattle and go out to Redmond for kind of a two-day thing. And it was basically product managers from each of the product groups telling them, here's what's going on, roadmap, blah, blah, blah. Well, I was the guy doing 50 to 75% of all our IoT EBCs. And so I'd sit there on a whiteboard and, and do that because I didn't like doing PowerPoint all the time. 
but it, you know, was, it sounds a lot like marketing. I just want to point that out. It is. I am a marketer. I didn't. I don't have any education in that, but yes, it is. In fact, I would say the Executive Briefing Center is arguably Microsoft's most powerful marketing and sales tool that they have because they get the execs in there and blow them away with futuristic stuff, right? And so totally get that. Absolutely. And also don't do the PowerPoint thing because the bad stuff happens is when a customer flies 6,000 miles away on the other side of the planet and they get they see the same presentation from a PM that was given to them in their home country. And they're like, we flew all the way here for right. this. But I would hear stories about them trying to do IoT or what people were doing. And so I talked to oil and gas companies and they would literally, and it, after a while you start to get a, an epiphany about things. And you know, you're always assuming the best of all these customers, they're advanced, they really know what they're doing. But more times than not, I kept hearing about, well, Jed would drive in his pickup trucks out to the oil tank fields and put a big stick in there to find out how much oil is in there. And I'm like, surely this isn't real. But over time, more and more of these EBCs, I would find that's what most companies were doing. Not that exactly, but similar crude primitive ways to discover the remote state of something. And in your mind, you're like, you don't even need what we're selling you. This That's like the m most dumb thing ever, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, you could save some money on pickup trucks. You could, exactly. And then I remember reading a story, I don't know if it was Shell Oil or whoever, and they were doing something in Nigeria. And they literally, the, the, the way the operation was going, someone was flying out there once a month to take measurements and stuff like that. And then when they went to using an IoT system and wireless and stuff like that, it saved them like $20 million a year. And they're like, wow, that's like magic. And I was like, it seems obvious to all of us, right? But in the moment. And so when I talk about IoT and value, I try to stay away from saying AI and things like that. And I say, there is so much value just doing the stupid stuff, the low-hanging fruit. And I think we oftentimes do our customers a disservice because I hear people say IoT and AI in the same sentence over and over again. And I go, you know what? You really need to get in your car and I need you to drive to Omaha, Nebraska. I need you to drive to St. Louis. I need you to go to Oklahoma City. And I need you to meet real people who are just trying to get their job done. And they have no idea about your neural nets and stuff like that. And they don't understand it. And I think we scare customers. It turns out what my experience, not only building Azure IT, but even more importantly, building Lumata Industrial IoT at Hitachi is, I'd say that first 10 to 20% of value, whatever that means, saving money, making money, that comes from the easy stuff. It really does. Just being connected, just not having to visit simple KPIs, simple thresholding, like stuff that manufacturers have done for a million years. Turns out that's the most of the value. When we started doing ML models on classes of machines and factories, and sometimes you could get it to work in the lab, and then the holy grail is, well, once I nailed this model for this class of machine, the instances of those machines, it's all going to work. Well, guess what? It almost never worked. <laughs> or if it did, the <laughs> incremental value was like 1%, 2% after the big 20% you got from the easy stuff. So my big recommendation to the world is start crawl before you run, do the basics, because it turns out you might get tons of value that you never realized just by doing the easy stuff first. Don't feel pressured to do something you don't even understand, right? That is that is very sage advice. I get asked all the time, what's driving this mega trend of edge computing and why is it so important? And the thing that I'm fond of saying is like, look, it's very simple. The, the internet we grew up with was all about delivering content to humans and maybe yeah. humans talking to machines. I'm typing into my Google Doc. So everything's happening in ones of seconds. Yeah. And now we're moving to a world where it's machines talking to machines. And yeah. machines, second is glacial. Yeah. And so the infrastructure that we have built is not capable of ingesting, processing, and consuming, and otherwise acting on the deluge of data that is coming when billions and billions of sensors come online. Right. And as you say, you can start with this very mechanical view of it. Imagine you have a yeah. person in a clipboard, right? Now imagine you've yeah. got a million people in a clipboard and now imagine that that person has to go back and forth in a rocket ship. And right. you can sort of demystify Absolutely. Uh, all this stuff. And I, Absolutely. I, I really appreciate that point of view. So let's talk a little bit about 
edge computing. I sense you're a little skeptical, and I'd love to sort of tease that out of you if that's true. No, it's fine. What do you think? It's fine. Tell me a little about edge computing. What's yeah, the cool thing is, is that I'm not an analyst or some guy pontificating. I actually built all this stuff with my own hands. And so I didn't, I was late to the party. Well, I don't know if I was late to party with edge computing. My, my first kicking the tires and building stuff at Microsoft, we had kind of a open source, early, early edge thing, 2015, I think it was 2014 or 2015, just to, because, especially because I'd done a lot of the, you know, a lot of these ideas came from manufacturing and factories and stuff like that. And so there was a lot of stuff that was just kind of really obvious. I say obvious to those folks, right? Not obvious to everybody. And so the, there was this notion of gateways, field gateways, all this discussion. And the thing was, well, and again, early days, Microsoft, everyone's like, well, it's all about the cloud and we're all going to the cloud. There's no in-between. But then there was like, oh, wait, wait a second. What's what's that thing there on the factory floor? You can't talk to the cloud? That's crazy talk. You have to go through some kind of gateway. And I remember because, you know, I would do these executive briefings and I would have to, you, you have to explain it in ways people understand. And so I was like, well, imagine you're at your office or a factory or wherever, and you've got a network and all your PCs and your Macs and everything are on it. And how do you get out to the Internet? Well, your internal network probably goes through something called a router that maybe you bought from Cisco. And that's how you get out to the internet. And it said- Looks a well, lot like an edge gateway, doesn't it? That's what an edge gateway is. I go, you got all these machines. Most of them are old. Most of them, we're sitting here talking about milliseconds or seconds. Give me a break. Most of them are like RS-232 and stuff like that and SCADA machines and all this other stuff. You've got to interface with a bunch of them locally with an edge gateway and then have a bail to route it out to the to the cloud, right? And you talked about the millions of people with clipboards. We designed Azure IoT Hub to handle like tens of millions of events per second, messages, stuff like that, because that's kind of where our head's at. But to your point, turns out the, the edge is a thing. And baby step one is pull those guys together with some edge gateway that's mindlessly just maybe a router. I'm just going to route the data onto the cloud. I'm not going to necessarily do anything there. And so I remember tinkering around with our open source stuff. We had, this is long before Microsoft came out with Azure Edge, IoT, whatever it was called. Um, but real common sense stuff. I'm at a particular giant aircraft manufacturer that you may have heard of. And I'm on their factory floor talking to them. And I'm giving them the pitch about streaming analytics and ML and all this cool stuff. Predictive we maintenance. Just, and Yeah, all this stuff that we built in Azure with this new thing we built. So that we were And we were incubating it. It was early days. And the guy's like, man, that is great. That's exactly what we need. So tell me about the version that runs right here on my factory floor. Right. And you're like, oh. And then you, that's when the tap dancing starts, right? <laughs> Well, I had a I had a really fun conversation where where with with an analyst nameless and and he was saying, you know, I'm I'm really focusing on the relationship and workload placement between the network edge or the infrastructure edge and the enterprise edge. And I kind of looked at him and I said, "What's the difference between the enterprise edge and on-premises?" And he kind of looked at me <laughs> and he said, Nothing, except maybe no. the control plane extends back to the cloud, and that gives convenience. Like, sure, sure. There is no, there is no difference. It's and just fact, a location. Fact, despite the fact that this, well, I don't even think it's a location. I actually don't think it's like so, so. Despite the fact that, like, I put so much of my life into the the phrase "edge," including yeah. naming this podcast, I actually just think we're going to start calling it all the internet at some point because yeah. it, it doesn't. You don't care where the workload runs. You just right. care that it runs in a place that meets your SLA requirements on Absolutely. latency and jitter and bandwidth and resilience and all those things. And yeah, who knows where that is? Absolutely. And so the, the aircraft guy on the factory floor, well, he goes, let me just make it really clear to you. We have these giant machines that make other machines. And these big machines are spitting out terabytes of data per hour. And you're asking me to just send that terabytes of data per hour over expensive bandwidth to your distant cloud. And you can charge me to get it back out. Yeah. And then you're going <laughs> to munch on it for a while and then ding, and you're going to give me some brilliant insight or answer. He's like, I don't have time for that. And I can't afford it either. I, we, we, we spit out too much data to just keep shoveling it over the internet, over our bandwidth to your cloud and having it come back. They go, so it was, it was data volume and expense. 
obviously it's time and latency. I go, my, my time, my derived insight time is measured in milliseconds. And so it's like, I need your, your answers to happen here on the LAN, right here on the factory floor or really close in this building. If you think about factories, most of them are ethernet as it, as it turns out. And then a lot of them started doing Wi-Fi, and it's it's a mixed bag with Wi-Fi because you have heavy metal objects and things like that. And now people are kicking tires with uh, private 5G and stuff like that. But yeah, it's latency, it's expense, and it's security, governance, stuff like that. I remember when I went to Hitachi to build Lumata, and I had all these young engineers that were interviewing and hiring, and they had their ideas of how we should build Lumata. These are all born-in-the-cloud engineer guys, and they're like, let's just build the whole thing with it. AWS Lambda functions. And I'm like, I get it. We'll get to market a lot faster that way. But let me tell you something about industrial IoT. And go, we have plenty of people in Hitachi and other factory owners that say the data doesn't leave my factory ever. And I go, in fact, we make nuclear reactors. If you'd like to get fired really fast, why don't you hook your reactor up to the internet? That's the dumbest thing. Have you ever heard of Stuxnet? <laughs> and so it's like, we need to build something that's portable. It needs to, if, if, the, if the answer to the customer's problem is the whole thing runs on-prem, well, then it runs on-prem. Yeah, and to some extent, that's the, that's the reasoning behind products like Outpost and Azure Stack and so on, I mean, among other things. But the yeah. idea that, yeah, if, if, if data provenance and, and security is an issue, sure, we will, we will ship our cloud to you. Yeah. Now, it may not be air-gapped enough for the nuclear reactor company. Right, right. Yeah, because actually they made these hyper-converged racks of servers and tons of RAM and storage. And so we were able to repurpose. So not only did we build the Lumata software platform, but we also had hard Lumata hardware. And we could just roll this thing in. Onto, in, in you know, in fact, we actually had Lumata running on bullet trains, getting real-time telemetry from the trains and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. The, it, and so before, I, portability was an important thing in my mind. Whether I called it the edge or whatever, I was just like... And I would say weird things to engineers like, I need you while you're building this to think like a salesman. And of course they would go, you're a freak. And I go, are you making this harder to sell? Or are you making it easier to sell by the code you're writing? If you're writing bloated, lazy code, and man, did we learn a lesson about using Java and then the early days of containers and all that stuff? it ended up just using more resources on servers. And I go, well, then we have to have an extra, extra large VM in AWS or Azure, and it costs more money. And it, it impacts the customer. I go, think like an embedded developer while you're building your server stuff. And the same goes for things that are running out in the edge. Yeah, lots Let of Let me weirdness. do a thought experiment with you. Yeah, so, go ahead. So, okay, let's, let's ignore the, the hyper-secure, have to air gap everything sure. situation, because that's truly unique. Although more common than most people think. And let's, let's imagine that we take Microsoft Data Center and we shrink it down to the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And rather than having it in Seattle or Maryland, we stick it 10 kilometers from the factory. And we have a direct fiber line. And so, I don't know, it's like 75 microseconds. Yeah. Is that, is that an alternative to on-prem? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you can serve more customers while giving them that latency that they're looking for. Absolutely. And potentially the security if it's a direct fiber line that you yeah. control. Like the olden days when we provisioned a T3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been in an industry long enough, nothing's new, right? Right. No, but exactly right. Instead of the open internet, it's a private circuit, right? And it's, so it's secure. And so it makes perfect sense. And so, and it's also goes back to, the same economies of scale people would talk about with cloud economics, the kind of edge you're talking about still plays in that same game because- Yeah, it sort of has the, a lot of the cloud economics with, without any of the- Absolutely. The pain, Absolutely. The pain of so centralization. You, right, right. And so you get that latency down and you got the same security that you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Now, I want to yeah. tap into your experience here. Sure. Um, so there are lots of, lots of people who- uh, especially in COVID, you know, they, 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 <laughs> nine months into COVID and their board set them down and said, okay, your 10 year automation strategy is now a three year automation strategy. Yeah. And so you have everybody, like the phone's ringing off the hook. How am I going to solve this problem? Whether it's to roboticize my factory or prevent downtime or it, whatever it is. And I'm sure a lot of the 
common problems that people run today are things you've seen over and over again. And so I, what advice can you give people who are embarking on an, an ambitious program to automate a, a factory or some other line of business? Yeah, I would say sometimes, you know, you always hear the same thing, start small and, you know, baby steps and get quick wins and all that kind of stuff. A lot of times when people try to do something that looks like a point solution, they get beat up for it. And they said, well, you shouldn't waste your time with this point solution, automating this one machine to this process. You need to have a blue ribbon panel of architects and come up with a grand design that we'll have in 10 years. And I think that's just crazy. You, It's okay to do something that looks like a point solution, that looks like it maybe it doesn't scale or it doesn't look like it's a grand plan. Because remember, most of the world still is clipboards, even today. And most people, the, that value needle when they see it moved, it, it, the bar is lower than you think. And so- And that's should, like encouraging, right? It is encouraging. Yeah. It is encouraging. And so don't think that I got to do the grand boil the ocean thing and the the grand just ML AI thing. trucks and clipboards. Yeah. You go, let's just solve this one thing and and high five each other. And then let's go solve the next thing. And yeah, maybe we'll do it similarly and we'll learn along the way. But you're right. This, this COVID thing, we're accelerating everything. I'll give you a great example. So Please. working at Ericsson, Ericsson makes, it's a manufacturer of networking gear for, it sells to mobile operators, right? Mm -hmm. So LTE, 5G, all the stuff you see in the cell towers and hidden all over the place, right? And we built a smart factory from scratch outside of Dallas during COVID. And it was to build 5G gear get it closer to customers, kind of like the edge. Let's get closer to where things are, right? We were manufacturing them in Europe and shipping them over. And some of it was politics. We kept hearing stuff from the president back then that America needs to win Bring in 5G. Just, yeah. yeah. What does that mean? How do you win in 5G? <laughs> and so it's like, all right, let's build the 5G stuff here. But what the cool stuff was, is we got to use we talk about Industry 4.0, we talk about industrial IT, because that's that's been kind of where the money is, and that's where the biggest impact has been. And it's just so hard. When I was at Hitachi, it's like we're going to spend the next two decades retrofitting old stuff, because people don't get rid of things. Like when we saw four, maybe a thousand, 400, maybe a thousand IoT players jump in the market all at once, and they knocked on the door, uh, Joe customer, and said, yeah. I'm going to need you to rip all that stuff out and replace it with this new state-of-the-art stuff. And the customer's like, get the hell out of my office. That's not going to happen. And so being able to build something from scratch was so amazing. And using 5G to build 5G technology was cool. And so we had the luxury. We did lots of edge stuff. It was all edge computing inside the smart factory. We took advantage of this thing called CBRS that allows individual businesses to get some spectrum where in the past you'd have to like call up Mr. Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile and say, can you peel up some spectrum for me? It's like, yeah, I go pound yeah, sand. It's like the cellular equivalent of Wi-Fi, I think is yeah, how you should think it about is. it. It is. Absolutely. And so building that, we build it sustainable. We had all these giant cisterns capturing all this rainwater. The whole factory was covered in solar panels. It's like, you know, if you had the chance to build something new from scratch, how would you do it? And so it was such a cool experience, but where a lot of the edge and some of the crazy stuff we all talk about came into play is because of COVID, you couldn't have a lot of people together, right? Yeah. And so, but, and yet we had to train and get this thing up and running in Texas. So we had a similar plant that we had in- There's no uh, COVID in Texas, according to the governor. Uh, true. Good point. I don't know what we were thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It turns out they were good the whole time, but we, we had a similar plant in Lithuania. No, no, Estonia. And so in Tallinn. And so what we had is when you hear the crazy talk about having the VR, AR glasses and everything, we literally did that. Really? We did. We used super low latency. This, there's different versions of 5G. Were they, were they wireless or were they hooked up to a... They were what wireless. Was the, what was the, really? Well, just, just to remind everyone, even yeah. when you're wireless, there's still wires. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It reminds me of seeing a meme a long time ago when some guy's like, 
serverless is made of servers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yes, it's wireless, but of course you had to go across the undersea cables and the ocean sure. to get to Estonia. But yeah, but, and so remotely using 5G and we did a lot of this edge computing stuff there, we trained the people in Texas on how to operate this new smart factory of the future. And, and when was this? This happened, I'd say spring, summer of 2020. Yeah, that's neat that you actually used it, you know, outside of a of a trade show floor. Uh, sort of a trade is, show floor demo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because yeah, we made it real. Because most people still think it's science fiction. They all and, and for a lot of people, it is. But the fact it that is. you, yeah, yeah, that's and so and so we it was real and it, it served a real purpose. We weren't just doing it to say we did it. Yeah, and so we trained people on how to operate this factory. But yeah, all in on edge computing. Here's the other funny thing I learned about edge computing. My my view of edge computing was pragmatic. Actually, is where it started. It's just like like in a factory. I need this here. Da, da, da. It's not some magical, fantastical reason. When I got into joined Ericsson, and the telecom folks started to say, "Hey, let's this edge thing. Maybe we could co-opt this whole edge thing and invent our own version of this." And so they talked about mobile edge computing or multi-channel edge computing or some other variation. Multi access, I think. Yes. Now. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right. So there's this whole mech thing. And they were so late to the party, but they they had to jump on it. In fact, a lot of people started saying, well, Mac is a feature of 5G, whatever. The takeaway was edge computing was, I just need a place to run compute, maybe closer, like to your point with the Volkswagen, closer without being on-prem necessarily, but maybe how many milliseconds or microseconds am I away over wireless to the edge of the cellular network? And so it's like, you know, with the rise of containers, inside computers, right? And servers, you know, you could put push logic down to a container. And so a lot of the edge computing companies that, that do that kind of stuff, that's their bailiwick. And so it's like, oh, we could run this in a baseband. If you think about the shack that's at the bottom of all the cell towers, there's servers right. in there. And you open it up, it's just an Intel server. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, well, yeah, we could run compute, edge compute right there. And we calculated, obviously, there's no exact science around wireless. <laughs> there's the stuff you do at a saturation lab, and then there's right. the real world, right? But anyway, yeah. but it's still faster than going all the way <laughs> to the cloud, right? And then also a lot of people don't realize all these mobile operators, they have data centers hidden throughout cities all sure. over the place. Yeah, They're just whatever. Maybe they're a bunch of Equinix or some of these, some other ones like that, right? And so there's lots of places. This is your phone call or your data hitting the cell tower with a whole bunch of your best friends going down. Maybe you do compute there. Then you have backhaul networks. And you go to these urban data centers. This all is before you go out to the open internet for the cellular network. And so there's lots of places still faster than the cloud where you could do compute, right? Yep. And so a lot of folks, you should probably read stuff from Verizon AT&T partnering up with AWS and Microsoft on trying to make something out of that. But edge is hard, as you well know. You live in the edge world. There's one thing that makes edge harder than the cloud. What's that? Orchestration. Sure, yeah. Well, cloud, just, it just distributed lights out facilities because you can't yeah. afford to have people there. And But that but that's what IoT's for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. I, you know, we, we're, we're running two to three data centers in six cities, well, networks and data centers in six cities. And our, and they're all, it's all automated. And our telemetry system generates a billion data points a day. Easy. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> right? totally. So we're treating the, the, the network and the data center like a factory. I mean, yeah. exactly like, like yeah. you were doing with the, the aircraft carriers. That's, that's, that's pretty neat. One of the things that you, you mentioned in the factory in, in Dallas was the sustainability in the cisterns. And I know partly because you're, you're executive director of the Moab Foundation, but also just having paid attention to some of the things you do online, that you're, you're pretty passionate about this. Ask, answer the question, what's the best way that Edge and IoT could contribute to sustainability, yeah. climate mitigation, you know, whatever those attributes are that you find important? What do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, they certainly work together hand in hand and you use them where it's appropriate. But yes, if you step away from the world of commercial software and hardware and making money and realize the same technology can be used to, to help society. Because if you remember, what is it? I'm just remotely measuring something. And so if I need to put a low cost edge compute capability in a village in Africa, 
to monitor things. I, I can't do the expensive thing. I can't do the cloud thing necessarily. It's all super cost sensitive. And so obviously like lots of us, I've been on a journey around that, but after a while you're like, oh, well, you know, there's these great 17 sustainable development goals from the United Nations that really helped categorize things that made things a lot easier. Cause I started to go, wow, whether it's water, what, I mean, what is it all? It's monitoring. It's remotely monitoring. I'm going to monitor water. I'm going to monitor how things are with the, with the climate in certain places. When you talk about poverty, well, it turns out most poverty and hunger are related to farming. They are all correlated. Most of the poorest people in the world are in farming and they're also starving. So when you can start knowing, remotely knowing in real time and doing it low cost out there where it happens, and then combined with automation, what what's the action I'm going to take to make this better for someone, right? Anyway, there's so much you can do. It's it's mind-boggling. And, and you feel that the net contribution of good that comes out of the result of these sensors and calculations and actions that we take on them is greater than the damage we do by sticking more power-consuming, yeah. heat-generating equipment out in the field? That's a good, you know what, it's it's always open for debate. But I figure right now when we go help people who are in need, we fly there. Starving is is pretty immediate. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, is there an easier way? I can't fly all these people to this place. I mean, we do it. The United Nations does it. All kinds of NGOs are doing great work all over the world. Is there a way I can help them? and be an enabler to help them do more with less, right? That's what IoT is. I'm going to help you do more with less, automate processes, because you don't have all the hands on deck to do all that work. And so if I look across those sustainable development goals, and and you know what? You shouldn't pound a square peg in a round hole. I'm, I'm not suggesting that IoT and Edge and 5G can save everything, because they can't. But there's certainly areas where they can. And so I spend a lot of time building technology the one thing we haven't talked about, it's digital twins at the heart of Lumata. I think that should be at the core of everything, actually, because that's how yeah, you model Yeah, so I actually, I actually didn't bring that up because you were kind of saying, well, the AI, ML stuff. But let's, let's if, if you could spend a few yeah. minutes, I'd love to talk about digital twins. Yeah, well. So, so what is a digital twin? That's right. A digital twin doesn't have to be AI and ML. A lot of people say, oh, well, it's this 3D model of this offshore drilling rig, or it's this AI thing. And but that's just that's, data in a, that's, yeah. That's just, it's, it's just not true. And so I got involved in digital twins building Lumata and we decided it needed to be at the very core of the system. Remember how I said, well, IoT is just plumbing. All these things are just plumbing. I got, you got to do it. I got to instrument things or environmental sensors. I need data to get wherever point A to point B. I need to capture it. But a great way to, a digital twin is a data structure at its heart. Just right. You could build it in Excel if you wanted to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody just put on your DBA hat right now. Or Visual Basic. Yeah, exactly. So so it could be your access database or your SQL server or your Oracle, or it could be Mongo or all the all the different NoSQL databases, but it, it's a data structure. And so when I talk to people about digital twins, it's important, kind of like we've done this whole talk, is talk about related to things that people understand. So just think about the car that you drive. And when you're driving a car, you notice if you have a newer car, there's all this stuff on your dashboard, all this information about the health of your car that you didn't used to see. Well, yeah. those are just sensors. And IoT is just remoting that to somewhere else wirelessly. Woo, magic. And so you can imagine building the digital twin of your car. And so there are some static. And, there's, and, and I think of it like a programmer, like a base class that you inherit from. So there's the class of the digital twin. So like um, Ford F-150 from 2018, we'll start with that. And then there's 10 million instances of a 2018 Ford F-150 on the road, right? So the base class of that, that you define and you say all these properties, this truck has four tires and each tire has air pressure, you know, PSIs, and it's got an engine and all this stuff. And so you build out the data structure that's just defining these properties. Some are static, that don't change, like the truck is 20 feet long or the gas tank is this big. And then some are dynamic with the sensor sending you real-time telemetry as your truck is really moving. And so when that telemetry is coming in and you capture the latest state of that F-150 on the road, it hydrates 
all those properties in the kind of in the data model and you have the latest state. And so you go, oh, I noticed that the right front tire is at 35 PSI and the left front tire is at 25. And then you can apply in the twin KPIs. You can say, well, this is what I expect it to be. This is green and this is yellow and this is red. So you can assign KPIs to what you expect those values to be as that telemetry is coming in. And then you can start automating. I, I went so deep on digital twins and trying to assign KPIs and rules and things in the twin itself. Normally we get the data and then we build analytics over here and we act on it. I did some crazy stuff because luckily there's no standards and that means I can just invent stuff. And so doing that, and it, tw it turns out twins are not some esoteric things. It's like if people talk about asset management or, or a thing, a twin made it something that people understand. It's I mean, like, you know, it's it's really fascinating. When you were talking about the car, my yeah. mind immediately went to an airplane cockpit. And then yeah. my my family was in the, the airplane construction business. And so sure. I know a little bit. But you think about like a 747 in 1976, okay? There, yes. was, there wasn't much digital on there. And the cockpit is like an analog twin with a touch interface. Yes. <laughs> where the yes. data is, where the twin data is represented by lights and actually, you know, and solenoids. Absolutely. Because you're right, um, we did analog to analog, didn't we? Yeah. You know? And a digital like, twin is just a, a digital representation. Just a, yeah, it's interesting. Of the same thing. And so yeah. we're just, all we're, and so before we jump to AI or saying it's a 3D model, it's actually just a data structure in yeah. a database yep. and, and all the properties and everything. And you can model that in a database, however you want to do it. And then there's the actual data that's flowing in that fills in all those fields in the database for the engine, the oil pressure, the RPM, a million different things about the car and a trillion different things about a 747 for sure. And then you have the latest state. And then guess what? The historical state, because it's like time series. You hear that a lot in IoT. We timestamp everything that's coming in, right? Well, mm -hmm. that history of the latest state of that digital twin of the Ford F-150 is the digital thread. And so this thread shows you the lifetime of that truck from birth to being used until it's decommissioned, right? And then when you put a bunch of, remember I say we start with the base of the 2018 Ford F-150, then there's yours and there's mine and there's all the other ones. When you aggregate that stuff together, you can start to solve problems. Like you can say, well, gosh, I notice across this fleet of this particular model, the fuel pump's going out at 60,000 miles. And we're seeing that over and over again. And you can start to correlate and go, maybe we should do a recall. And so there's just so many powerful things you can do, but I want people to know that Digital Twin is simple and it's just a way. And so when people say, well, Digital Twin is the VR goggles, Right. No, that's just a view that's of a the projection of the twin. database. That's, that's all right. it is. Yeah. Because to your point, that projection could also just be somebody with a tablet and Excel spreadsheet. And that's the, that's fine too. So yeah, it's just a data model and the data. Yeah. And then you yeah, can do I, all I, kinds I, of I love demystifying this stuff like that. It's uh the, this this is it's been a, a really fun conversation, Rob. For those in my audience that wanna track you down online, maybe read some of your books or watch some of your, your podcast or video casts, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. Well I'm certainly on LinkedIn and and then just Rob Tiffany on Twitter. Rob Tiffany Digital is my website. I've got podcasts on Spotify and all the usual places, Apple and things like that. I'll drop some know. awesome links in the show notes. Absolutely. Yes. So I'm everywhere all at once. Awesome. That's just crazy. Well, thank you, Rob. Maybe uh, once you figured out what your next gig is going to be, we'll have you back and have you tell us what else you've learned. Sounds like a plan. Good stuff. Thanks, sir. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.